This is the On The Banks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at OTB underscore SB Nation. Now, here's your host, Aaron Brightman. Welcome to episode 124 of the On The Banks Podcast. I'm your host and managing editor, Aaron Brightman. Thanks so much for joining us once again. Here we are now entering the middle of January. Weather's been pretty cold out, uh, but lots of activity and news around Rutgers Athletics. Most notably this week, Rutgers football, very active in the transfer portal, very active in changing their coaching staff. Just a week out of their Gator Bowl appearance last Friday, uh, head coach Greg Schiano making um, a lot of significant moves, replacing Rob Smith as defensive coordinator with Joe Harizmiak, former co-defensive coordinator at Minnesota. Really like the hire, working for PJ Fleck there. Uh, has head coaching experience at Maine. He took them to the FCS semifinals in 2018. He's a Jersey guy. He's worked his way up the ranks. He's relatively young at 35. But I think defensively, if you uh, notice what Minnesota was doing a lot this year, you know they were constantly changing schemes and looks, uh, blitzing quite a bit from different different spots on the field. And I think that it fits a lot more into what Shiano has wanted to do in the past. And I think as they start to improve recruiting, you know, uh, infusing this defense with four-star linebackers, you know, having a more aggressive mindset and and a more versatile play-calling approach, I think just fits to T of what Harizmiak can do and uh, in conjunction with, with Shiano moving forward. And I, I really like the hire. Uh, and it's always good when you see Minnesota fan base upset when a coach leaves, that's always a good sign too. And then obviously adding uh, Marquise Watson as defensive line coach, you know, everyone says he's a rising star in the coaching ranks, a former Paramus Catholic player, really was groomed by Chris Partridge, um, worked for him at Old Miss, and is now coming back. And, and as he called it, coming home, former GA assistant at Rutgers under Ash. I think, you know, recruiting wise, really smart hire. He's in his mid-20s, so the staff gets younger. And I think also just in terms of his upside as a coach and the experience on the defensive side of the ball to, to support him with Fran Brown, Bob Frazier, and now Harizmiak. I think, you know, it's a really good situation for him to have his first full-time assistant coaching position. And then in the transfer portal, it's been, I mean, so impressive uh, in terms of what they've done so quickly in the last few days, obviously adding Sean Ryan, the receiver from West Virginia, also a Jersey guy. Average 16 yards a catch last season, led West Virginia in that area. Rutgers hasn't had a receiver with that type of yard per catch average since Leontay Carew in 2015. Obviously, big plays in the passing game are so important. And I think that, you know, while uh, he hasn't had more than 25 catches in a season, and no one should expect him to come out and have a 75-catch year next year, um, he certainly has the potential to be a number one receiver for this team and 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 a surefire starter, I would think. Um, hopefully Aaron Cruikshank can make a full recovery and be healthy for next season. We don't know. Shameen Jones is back, but adding Ryan into the mix certainly helps offensively have a proven playmaker on offense added for next season. Um, certainly key. And then the offensive line, of course, we knew major needs there. Um, you know, all the combinations they tried this past year, nothing really worked out. There is some potential there. Of course, Holland Pierce, Troy Rainey, you know, freshman that really, I think, in a difficult situation, did rather well um, and certainly have, um, you know, potential. Gus Salinkis at center towards the end of the year, I think he he could stick there as well. But four 
transfers added in the last few days through the transfer portal. Uh, pr- pretty um, remarkable in terms of the pedigree of the players that they're bringing in from the transfer portal. First, it started with FCS All-American J.D. Dorenzo uh, from Sacred Heart, uh, announced last Friday. He's someone, he's got one year left. He, he, I think he's a plug-and-play lineman that, you know, um, potentially could start, and if not, certainly uh, a play, uh, you know, in terms of a reserve role. But I think he, he certainly will fight for, for a starting role. One year left there. And then in the last few days, uh, Colorado State offensive lineman Mike Siafone, his uh, father, Joe, played for Rutgers in the early 90s. He was at Boston College originally and then Colorado State. He's more of a uh, you know project guy. He's got three years left. But I think depth-wise, potential-wise, it was a smart smart addition. And then really the news on uh, Wednesday night, uh, Rutgers landing two impact transfers, Curtis Dunlap Jr., the former four-star uh, and former All-Big Ten honorable mention selection in 2019 from Minnesota, plays guard. Uh, should be an immediate starter uh, next season. Has two years left. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's just a major, major pickup. And then they also added Willie Tyler, who started his career at Texas, um, was at Louisiana Monroe last season. And he's uh, both, all, all three, um, Tyler, Dunlap Jr., uh, and Dorenzo, all 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, three 15-plus pound guys, obviously Big Ten size, but also, I think, you know, experience and talent level really just dramatically improves the offensive line and the outlook for 2022. Can't say enough of the job that the coaching staff has done in bringing in this type of talent. You have the seven freshmen coming in. Obviously, this gives them a chance to learn from veterans and take their time with development-wise. Obviously, there'll be some competition, which is always a good thing. Raekwon O'Neal will be back. Reggie Sutton hopefully will be fully recovered. So all of a sudden, Rutgers has depth and certainly a much more experienced and interesting group uh, at that offensive line. And I think, you know, can be excited uh, about that group as much as we've been in, in, in quite some time. Shifting out of basketball, Rutgers obviously was on a four-game winning streak, two impressive victories last week over Michigan and Nebraska. And then everything came to a screeching halt on Tuesday with a very disappointing performance at Penn State. The road has really been a problem for Rutgers all season. I mean, if you're a Rutgers fan, really the last 30 years, they haven't had a winning road record in league play since the 1990-91 season. Last season, they actually did win four games on the road in Big Ten play, but uh, there is an asterisk there. There were no fans. For whatever reason, um, Rutgers just continues to struggle on the road. And what disappoints me the most about this group is that I really thought they would be different. I think, you know, with, with Ron Harper Jr., Geo Baker, Caleb McConnell, Paul Mulcahy, that's the veteran core four right there that, you know, if it's going to happen and they, they take that next step as a team and a group and, and learn how to win on the road uh, in the Big Ten, it's really now or never. Uh, Penn State, they, they laid a, a massive egg, uh, lost 66-49. The offense was abysmal. To me, what was, was really troubling was I, I just felt like they had a lack of toughness. They had a lack of energy and they had a lack of discipline. They were taken out of their game. Credit Penn State. They played a great game defensively, I thought. But uh, Rutgers just never adjusted and their energy level was low. You know, I thought that they're uh, really, you know, toughness. They got beat inside. Cliff Omori had a a, a pretty good game. He had a double-double, 12 and 12. John Harar was limited to six rebounds. He did score 16, but, um, you know, he didn't have any help. And I think 
Rutgers is definitely missing Moat Mag. Hopefully he returns um, this coming week and uh, at Maryland. Um, but his toughness and energy, I think, is, is really needed. Um, Andre Hyatt brought a little bit off the bench, but um, I'm really disappointed in the, the, the seniors uh, and, and the group of four uh, that I really thought, you know, w- would be better at this point on the road. They're, they're own five now. They lost uh, one possession games at DePaul and UMass. And then their games at Illinois, Seton Hall, and now Penn State, they've lost by an average of 22 points. So to not even be competitive at this point um, is obviously concerning. And and here we are, you know, nine and six, three and two in the Big Ten. You know, I don't want to call Maryland a must win, but um, I think it's as close to a must win in January as you could ever get. You know, I, I think for Rutgers to get to that 12 and eight mark in Big Ten play, which I think is is pretty much the consensus of what people think they probably need to be at going into the Big Ten tournament to be in contention for the NCAA tournament, you have to win three or four road games. I don't think you can count on Rutgers winning 10 games at the rack. Also, road wins in conference play are vital to to, um, to your net ranking, which is obviously a huge criteria used by the NCAA selection committee. So you need three or four wins. The next four road games are at Maryland on Saturday. Uh, then you're at um, Minnesota, Nebraska, and then Northwestern. Uh, it really doesn't get more manageable uh, than that. And Rutgers has to take advantage. Um, I think they have to win three out of four, to be honest with you. And I think with Maryland on Saturday, yes, they, they, you know, they, they're, they played tough. Um, they almost blew it against Northwestern on the road last night, but they won in double overtime. But this is a team with a lame duck coach and uh, players that, you know, probably don't, aren't even, you know, comfortable in their future with the program. You know, not to say they don't have anything to play for, but Rutgers has so much more to play for, I think, as a program and, and uh, you know, reclaiming their identity. They won at Maryland last year. I think this is a game, you know, for all intents and purposes, they have to win to get things back on track and to stay in contention uh, in terms of NCAA tournament. Uh, otherwise, we could be, you know, in early February and, and this, uh, you know, unfortunately, they're just going to have to write out the schedule. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody, um, you know, uh, hopes that that's the case. And I think that, you know, it's not too late. Um, but this group, it's if they're going to figure it out, they need to do it now. To talk more about Rutgers men's basketball, the rotation, even recruiting and, and the future outlook for this roster, I'm happy to have former On the Banks contributor and current Rutgers men's basketball beat writer for NJ Advanced Media, Brian Fonseca, here to join us. And we welcome him in now. It's now my pleasure to welcome back to the On the Banks podcast, former contributor and now current Rutgers men's basketball beat writer for NJ Advanced Media, Brian Fonseca. Brian, thanks so much for being here and appreciate your time. Aaron, it's always always a pleasure to come talk hoops with you, man. It's uh, Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you as well. I should start by uh, one of my favorite memories of, of um, you know being at On the Banks was our, the 2017-18 season when you were uh, on the beat with me for On the Banks. And uh, it, it culminated with that uh, three-day run at the uh, Big Ten tournament. At Madison Square Garden, uh, we, we filmed on the court every night after each game. And uh, that really was kind of the, the beginning of, of something special in terms of the Steve Peichel era. How, I guess, have from that moment to now, I guess, what, what has been your biggest takeaway, you know, during his coaching tenure and, and where he's, I guess, where we were on that moment on the court uh, at the end of that season is the program where you reasonably thought it could be at this moment. If you let me reminisce a bit off that, I was at uh, obviously I was at Penn State last night, and I'm looking at the court. Fellow former on the big contributor Griffin Whitmer went with me uh, three years ago to that court, and we filmed a video 
on that court. And I, I was thinking about that and I was thinking about those videos we did at, at MSG. So that's a nice little uh, moment that you, that you bring that up. I think anyone who says that Pykele hasn't exceeded expectations is being facetious because, I mean, listen, the disastrous month they had in November, I think we could all agree it was a disastrous, but people were angry, angry that Rutgers was out, was starting to get out of contention for the NCAA tournament by December. I mean, that's insane. That was an expectation for this program for decades, probably, right? I mean, you know better than me, but that might be harsh, but for a long, long, long time, the NCAA tournament was a pipe dream. And here were people getting just bonkers mad that they that, that they botched non-conference games and were in danger of getting out of contention. So I think that just kind of says it. I think he's really molded the program in his image. Everyone knows what a Steve Peichel team looks like. Everyone knows what it looks like when it's good and when it's bad. I think they got in glimpses at both ends of the spectrum uh, this season. I think uh, overall, given the fact that they were in the NCAA tournament uh, already after five years, I don't think anybody could say it was other anything other than a success. It has its flaws, obviously, which I'm sure we're going to get into. But I think overall, the program is in... If you told somebody coming off that MSG trip, this is where the program would be in three or four years. I don't have the timetable really in my head now. But if you told them that's this is where the program would be right now, I don't think any anybody associated with Rutgers would say it's it's bad. I think everyone would take that uh, immediately. I think it's a good point. And I think, you know, in covering the team as we do, I, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act in terms of the big picture long-term progress has been made, the outlook moving forward, as well as balancing this current season and where we're at. And obviously, you know, after last night's loss against Penn State, the season really is very close to being on the brink. And I think being able to kind of be balanced and, and cover both sides of that is is certainly tricky. And I think, as you said, you know, that there's a portion of the fan base that's extremely volatile right now. And it's almost, to me, that, that shows progress also, because for many and many years, there, there was more indifference than anything else. So aside from, from the, the longtime loyal fan base, touching on last night, what was the most disappointing part of their performance in that 66-49 loss? A couple of things I want to go off what you just said before we get into uh, Penn State. Sure. Uh, I do think that it's, it's something that's obvious with a lot of other teams. I think the Giants are a great example of this. I think everyone would rather have a fan base that's angry rather than apathetic because once you get apathetic like they were for so many years at the, at the end of this Jordan era especially, that then you're, you're just lost. Then that, that's beyond the pale, right? I do think that, I mean, I was one of the harshest critics of this team after the first month. I do think there was some criticism warranted given the way, I mean, you can't lose to Lafayette. I don't care if Joe Baker gets hurt. I don't care what the reason is. You can't lose to Lafayette. That's a back-breaking, resume-killing, season-derailing loss that they had that they've started to climb out of. But had they not lost that game and had they not lost or blown a 17-point lead to UMass, this would be a very different season outlook. And the loss last night, to get back to that, would not be as disastrous that might be a bit strong of a word but i mean that that loss is 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 bad because of for many reasons one it was one of the easiest quote-unquote uh, steve peichel uh, pr- probably rightfully says it's hard to win on the road in the big 10 of all the games there that's probably one of the quote-unquote easiest uh and workers did not look close to to doing that i mean they were down double digits for most of the game lost wire to wire uh, it was surprising to see both geo baker and ron harper have an off night and i think it that exposed the issues of this team that those two guys are far and away the most important scoring options and really the only score, consistent scoring options on this team. When they disappeared, they had nobody off the bench that could give a spark. Andre Hyatt tried. Uh, he really couldn't have any success. I think he went one of eight or something like that. Uh, and they had no one else that could pick up the load. And that's obviously an issue. A lot of teams are star dependent. I don't know as many teams are as star dependent as Rutgers. Uh, and then the bench, obviously, I, I think it was surprising that no one got out and played. So I don't know. Uh, I think the combination of Ron Harper and Geo Baker, uh, no showing this game essentially on the offensive end and uh, the bench not being able to pick him up were both very surprising. 
Yeah, I think those are good points. I thought that, you know, and I know uh, we were on the, the post-game call with Paykel and he was asked about Ralph uh, Gonzalez aging not playing. And I, I, I regret it after the fact, to be honest, not not asking about Jaden Jones, but I kind of gotten the feeling over the last few games that, you know, I, I don't think there's any issues there, but I think with his development, maybe they're taking a step back. And, you know, I think that he missed some time too with COVID and that, that certainly didn't help. You know, Paykel's always talked about younger players, you know, having disjointed schedules, not being a benefit to them, really harped on that last year. I was surprised though with how much time, uh, you know, Oscar Palmquist got last night. I think, you know, you have to credit Paykel for, for trying to change things up and get something going, but, um, you know, wasn't able to really, any string he pulled didn't work. For me, the most alarming part of last night was just how quickly this team kind of, you know, loses their identity in a way in terms of when they face adversity on the road. And this isn't just about last night. You know, this is um, really with this group over time. Uh, and and as I think both of us have written in the last day, just in terms of Rutgers as a whole, hasn't had a winning season in 30 years on the road. It's a, it's a program issue. It's not just a Steve Peichel problem. But, uh, you know, th- this is the group that I kind of thought would break that trend. And I thought that they were they would have been at the point now where they've learned how to be, even if they're not winning every road game, of course, the fact that they've been so uncompetitive, you know, 22 point average loss in their last three games on the road against Illinois last night and uh, Seton Hall. I guess how concerning is it that, you know, this team seems to kind of, you know, stop what we're doing, what works for them and, and kind of gets thrown out of whack, maybe not easily, but as often as they do. Sorry to do this again, but to go back on Jane Jones, I think one thing that you mentioned his his development, I think one thing that hurts him in a sense is that for many other programs in the country, he would be a four-star kid who comes in and it's it's a nice pickup on the recruiting trail, but he can kind of slowly come along and develop. Whereas at Rutgers, he's, he's one of the greatest recruits they've had in, in years, right? So a lot of expectations were heaped on him that were maybe unfair. Um, so he, he has plenty of time to develop. The kid is 18 years old. Uh, he's not going to come in and be a savior, uh, a five-star, you know, NBA ready kid that's going to save the program. That's just not it. So I think some people had some unfair expectations for him. Um, but uh, to your point, it is very alarming that they can't win on the road. I, I, again, winning on the road is hard. I understand. I think some uh, there was some stat that the last five years in the Big Ten, the road team only wins something like 36, 37% of the time. Uh, it's t- tough to win on the road in college basketball in the Big Ten. But to go 0 5, to get spanked the way you said last three, well, you didn't say it, I'm saying it, the last three games, I mean, you lose by <laughs> double digits. The Illinois loss was just, yes, Illinois is the best team in the Big Ten. They've been showing that. But the way they lost that game was just alarming. And last night, I mean, it's it's a, it's a no-show, essentially, on the road. They looked, they could not look different from what they looked like at the rack to what they looked like against Penn State. Granted, at the rack, they played the worst team in the Big Ten in Nebraska that gave up halfway through. Their coach admitted as much. And they played a Michigan team that was down four reserves. They had all their starters, but they had four reserves. No one really wanted to talk about that during the win streak because uh, no one wanted to be a Debbie Downer. But the truth is that they looked really good those four games because they played really bad teams. And again, the caveat is that in November, they didn't do that. They lost to Lafayette. They barely squeaked by Lehigh. That was a step in the right direction, but they were doing something that they should have done in the first place. So when you go out and play a hard game on the road against the Penn State team that's hungry for their rookie head coach, their veteran team, they got some great pieces, John Harar, I mean, just a stud veteran, maybe stud is a bit strong for him, but just a solid veteran presence, uh, and they couldn't do it. And I agree, they lost their identity. Uh, they got a bit scrambled once the ball wasn't going in. Uh, Michael mentioned this in his press conference after it seemed like they weren't as focused on the defensive end. But I thought they played well enough defensively. 66 points is a lot for Penn State considering how many how few possessions they have, but they finished with, I think, one point 
0.04 points per possession, which is not outrageous. Rutgers just couldn't score. They scored at 0.77. So this long-winded way of saying I agree with you, the, the road rolls are alarming, not, for the result, not just for the results, but they seem so different away from home. It's not translating on the road, and it doesn't seem like anybody can really put a finger on it. So that being said, uh, Saturday at Maryland, a um, little bit of a different situation. Uh, lame duck coach and uh, you know acting head coach Danny Manning after uh, Mark Turgeon resigned earlier this year. Essentially, a team that you know was picked middle of the pack isn't playing that well. Maybe not even necessarily a lot to play for uh, moving forward for that team. Who knows how many players on that team are already looking forward to you know po- uh, post this year of where their next step might be. It's maybe hard to say it's a must win in mid-January, but I think it's as close to that as it can be. What are your thoughts on how crucial winning on Saturday is to the rest of the season? The RU Screw Guys pod guys, uh, another Rutgers podcast, like to joke with me uh, and the, the idea of a must win versus a can't lose. Uh, they like to think there's no difference. They like to say it's a must win, can't lose, whatever. I do think there's a difference. I think this is a must win because I looked at the, the road schedule for the rest of the year last night. I was surprised at how... It, it really is a soft next three games. I think they play Minnesota, Nebraska, Northwestern, which is not as hard as I remember it being, but the jet, the February slate is just brutal. I mean, you go to Mackey Arena, Cole Center, to Michigan, and then you go to Indiana. And Indiana's having a decent season um, at home. So that's you don't want to go into those four games needing to win three out of four. I mean, that's just an impossible ask. So you avoid that by winning games against, like you said, a, a team in disarray with a, a coach that's not coming back against players who, to their credit, they've come back from double-digit deficits and back-to-back games, but they've also gotten themselves into double-digit deficits in the past two games. So this is a team just kind of scrambling to end the season. It seems like half the time they just don't even want to be on the court, which is understandable. I mean, you come into a season with one head coach and some high expectations. You By December, the guy's gone, right? So if the guy's gone, why the hell am I here playing basketball? It, it's it's a mess. It's a mess. And Rutgers has had a hard time winning at Xfinity Center. There's going to be maybe 25% capacity in that building. The Maryland fan base has chucked the season away. Maryland basketball players just about chucked the season away. So you have to win that game. If you cannot beat a downtrodden Maryland team, that's, I mean, they're playing bad basketball at a dead arena. I mean, that, that, that essentially killed the season. Again, if they run through February undefeated, the season's obviously not dead, right? But if you can't win at Maryland at this juncture, you, you're not going to beat Wisconsin at the Kohl Center, you're not going to beat Purdue at Mackey Arena. I agree with you with Maryland. The next slate of games on the, on the road for Rutgers, like you said, uh, they have at Minnesota, uh, at Nebraska, and then at Northwestern, starting with Maryland. I mean, it really doesn't get any better than that in terms of a Big Ten road stretch. Uh, and with a veteran team like this, if, if they're not going to figure it out now, they're never, they never will. And I think that's the, the real I, – I, I almost think it's, it's, it's a little bit of a legacy – defining moment for this team if, if, if they want to make that run improbable comeback run to uh, make the NCAA tournament at the end of this year this next four road games they, they have to have at least three I think um, to give them a chance I think we both agree 12 and 8 is where they need to be at a minimum to have a chance in March and um, I don't think you get there without three or four road wins um, you can't expect them to win every game at the rack you know you have Michigan State Ohio State Wisconsin at home all very difficult games. So I think, as you said, of course, yeah, February, sure, that's a pipe dream if they went on some miraculous run. But the reality is if they can't put together consistent performances against uh, teams that are on paper or winnable, I think it's a big problem. Just touching on the rotation, how much of a loss do you think it's been not having Moat Mag in these last uh, couple games? And what are you hearing in terms of his potential return? 
I think it's, it's huge. Uh, I, I don't know. It's impossible to like calculate how much these things factor in. Uh, but Ron Harbour, the last couple of times I've talked to him about the road woes, has mentioned needing to bring your own energy on the road. I mean, that place was dead last night. It's always, it's a mausoleum, right? Like that place never has an atmosphere. Again, I, I don't know. I don't know how much calculates. I think Walt Mag would help a lot in that in that area, though. Uh, he's obviously a guy who comes out sometimes too amped up, but he always brings a lot of energy off the bench. And he was really emerging, I thought, before he got got hurt. Had a, a string of a couple of really nice games, uh, and he looked like to be a solid bench piece. Uh, so it hurts them not having him both on the court for his play, and because they lacked that you know fire, that spark, that something off the bench, that intangible thing that he has that that it sometimes looks like he's fired. You know, out of a cannon, the way he plays. Um, <laughs> when he's going to come back, I don't know. Dental stuff is a bit tricky. He's had a long history of it uh, since high school, since he got teeth knocked out when he was get, when he got elbowed uh, in, in a high school game inadvertently, which is, I mean, the, guy, the kid has a terrible luck. I mean, he's had that. He, had th- he missed the first game of the season with dental work. He's missing multiple games. Steve Peichel hasn't given a timeline. I would. He was on the bench and dressed last night. Uh, I don't know what that indication. You know, normally that's an indication if it's like a physical injury with teeth. I, I don't know. I would not be surprised if he came back Saturday. I would not be surprised if he took you know a week. I, I really could not tell you. But whenever he does come back, I think he will add something that's missing missing there for Rutgers. I don't know if they would have won last night with him. I'm not saying that he's the reason they him missing was the reason they lost. I do think him being there would have helped uh, in many ways. I thought. Just in terms of the rest of the rotation, it, you know, how, how do you look at it in terms of is it really going to come down to the starting five being able to be consistent and figure things out, or, or do you anticipate Pico maybe trying more, switch it up a little bit, and um, you know, m- maybe Andre Hyatt getting more minutes? You know, obviously he's sticking with Dean Reber right now. He tried with Oscar Palmquist. But what do you anticipate just in terms of his approach with the rotation moving forward? It's a good question. It's not a bad bad thought to kind of switch things up, but I, I think that this is a starting five dependent team. They ha- they don't have that sixth man off the bench who would dependably come on and change. They had a Kwasi Yabo a couple of years ago. They had uh, uh, Jacob Young last year. I mean, they had Jacob Young coming off the bench at, at times last year. That's that's. Uh, and I think last I think when it was Jacob Young starting, Caleb McConnell was coming off the bench. Like they had they've had consistent sixth man options. This year the bench is just not it's just not there. Uh, maybe Milwaukee Mag could become that guy, but. The, the troubles of the five spot have been well documented. They really don't have anybody behind Cliff O'Marie. They've been really lucky that he's gotten a lot better in not getting into foul trouble. So they haven't had to dig into that well very often. But I mean, Dean Reber is emerging, but you know, the gap between him and Cliff O'Marie is, is pretty obvious when you watch the games. Andre Hyatt is, is Jacqueline Hyde. He has some really good games like he did against Nebraska. He has some bad games like he did against Penn State. Uh, there's no consistency there. Um, so could he, in theory, bring one of the starters off the bench to kind of give that second unit a bit, a bit of a, a boost? Maybe. Would that hurt the starting lineup? Maybe too. I don't know. That's a, a calculation he's going to have to make. But I agree with you that th- there is a very stark difference between those who start and those who come off the bench. And um, that comes back to recruiting. Uh, that's something that to fix in the future. You can't do that that season, obviously. So maybe that shift in rotation is uh, the solution. So that's a good segue. I did want to touch on recruiting and uh, kind of the outlook for this team following this year. Um, I know recently you went and you saw Derek Simpson, um, point guard who signed with with the class of 22. I believe he's ranked seventh in the state. Recruiting-wise, was uh, pretty much under the radar in terms of his AAU uh, experience and exposure during a pandemic. Um, but, you know, the analysts that you you read about and see um, have a lot of positive things to say about him. I, I've heard from people that, you know, they think he is a Big Ten caliber guard. Um, w- what did you witness in seeing him play uh, recently? And, um, you know, wh- what do you think the ceiling is for him? 
I don't want to make any grand uh, pro- prognostics about his future. I only saw him in person one game. I want to see him a little bit more before I can make you know a, a full evaluation. But I will say, I watched him play against Shawnee uh, last week. I was really impressed with the way he could score. I mean, he was he had a, a sweet shot from mid-range. He was hitting shots. He was knocking down threes. I think he shot something like five of seven or five of eight from three. Don't quote me on that. I'll have to check the stat sheet. But it felt like that. Uh, certainly really athletic uh he dunked on a kid i think for the second straight game but this one didn't count there was a foul uh, before the play etc uh but he he impressed me in his scoring ability he didn't get to the rim as often as i expected uh again point game sample size i'm not gonna make grand thing out of it but and his his defensive intensity wasn't there entirely the entire time that is something that's probably the least thing i would be worried about if i was a Rockers fan because steve peichel will hammer defense into somebody uh, if it's the last thing he does right so uh, and and when he did when he, when he was really engaged on defense, he forced like two steals and three possessions. Like the, he has the capability. It's just a matter of, you know, consistently doing that. I don't know how many high school kids are fully engaged on the defensive end. Like Jalen Miller was as a high school player. Like that, that, that I'm not going to knock the kid for that. Right. I've heard the Geo Baker comparisons over and over again. I think that's the comp that everyone makes. I don't think it's entirely wrong. I mean, the kid can, can pass the ball. He can score. Uh, he seems like a leader. He's always huddling his team, doing the, the, the nice little intangible things. Just uh, became Lenape's leading scorer of all time, which is a great sign of, of his ability and his talent. So, yeah, I liked what I saw. I certainly think he could become a Big Ten guard. I don't know if he's a you know freshman season, come on in, tear the league up kind of kid, but I think that kind of like Joe Baker, kid can come in, have some flashes freshman year, have a breakout sophomore year, and become you know a mainstay, solid, steady starter uh, for this program. Yeah, I think you're right. I, th- I think he, it is going to take time. I think physically he's going to need to uh, to really beef up to be able to, to to handle the wear and tear of the Big Ten. Just in terms of, uh, you know, touching on the outlook for next season, um, obviously, you know, Geo Baker will be gone. Ron Harper, he does have a year of eligibility left, although indicated before the year. This is likely his last. Caleb McConnell, we're not sure about. You know, th- there's going to be obviously um, transfer portal options out there. Antoine Wolfark is the only other uh, high school player signed. Big man was recruited more for football, probably a developmental big uh, coming into the program. I think it's pretty obvious to everyone that they're going to need some immediate help next year. Just in terms of how Peichel has approached the transfer portal, you know, I, I, I think you could argue knowing that Harper and Baker were coming back, you know, he approached it one way where perhaps and hopefully he approaches it differently this coming off season with those guys most likely gone. How are you, uh, what's your read on the situation and um, how important is it for Rutgers to be able to nab at least one or two, you know, impact plug and play guys for next season? Massively important. I think it's the difference between a very down year and a manageable year, because like you said, Harper and Baker are, I mean, I would put it at 99%, 99.9% they're both gone. I would be surprised if, if Ron came back. He, like you said, before the season, one last ride was the way he framed his return. Uh, he's played four years of college basketball. I think that uh, he's impressed some scouts with the way his performances, his good performances this year. So I think uh, this is the year. So to that end, you saw how dependent they were of him this season last night. If he's gone, is there anybody on the, the even if Caleb McConnell stays, is there anybody on the roster that you see that can come in and, and become that guy and become the consistent scorer? I, I don't see it yet. Uh, there'll need to be some development from other players to fill that role. So to that end, they need to find immediate help in the transfer portal. I think that you touched on it well, that the approach can be different for Michael. He had his hands a bit tied last year, not in a negative sense, but just, that's just the reality that he had two of his stars coming back. So that's a lot of minutes being played. He had a, a 
guy in Cliff Omarui who is an emerging stud player who's going to eat up, who, who needs minutes to continue his development. So you don't want to hamper that. But that means that you can't really go to guys like John Harar, who's a kid they transferred, uh, they targeted last year, and you know, give it, say you're going to play minutes because the kid will see Cliff Omarui is going to play minutes. I'm in my fifth year. I don't want to come in and compete for 20 minutes a game against the kid who they're going to want to play anyway, right? Like it's a tough sell, which is why they ended up getting. Ralph Ag, you know, in, in July, which uh, I mean, the the results speak for themselves, right? The kid didn't play last night. It is what it is. So yes, they're gonna have to transfer, hit the transfer portal hard. Like we'll have a bit of a better selling point for kids. Uh, I, I I assume that given his history, he will be a bit selective on who he takes. He will do a lot of uh, vetting. Uh, he'll want kids that kind of fit. The mold of his team, Michael will always choose the team over the individual. I think that's kind of been his MO. He's proven that. So we'll see. There will be a lot of options the way that the transfer portal is evolving. There's going to be thousands of kids in the portal. I'm sure plenty of local kids that he can reach out to, things of that nature. But again, one of my many long-winded answers, uh, the crux of it is, yes, that the transfer portal is crucial. Michael will need to hit it hard to avoid a disastrous outlook for, for next season. One more for you in terms of, and, and not a prediction per se, but... Um... Just with the way things have been, you know, the, the the highs of this team, the lows of this team, what we see with the schedule moving forward, what is your overall sense of how long can this team stay in some type of contention? And do you think that they reasonably have a chance to stay in postseason contention through the regular season? Through the end of February? I'm not sure. The slate is brutal. I think they can go into February with a puncher's chance. I, I, a fighter's chance, a puncher's chance. I'm not sure what the, <laughs> the saying is there, but I think they can have a chance if they do what they have to win the games they should on the road. I think the, those those last those next four road games, you have to win, I mean, at least two, bare minimum two. I think three is probably a borderline requirement. I mean, if you win all four, you're, you're money, right? Like you're, you're doing very well. Uh, and those are the four most winnable road games left. It depends on how those shake out. It depends on if they can hold home court. I agree with you. I don't think they're going to go 9-1 in the rack or at Jersey Mike's Arena, whatever they're calling it these days, again. So I think they have a chance. I really think if they had not lost those games in November, we'd be talking about a very different outlook. The reality is that they did. And I would be, look, frankly, given the way the road games have gone this season, I would be stunned if they were entering the Big Ten tournament with being a win away from the NCAA tournament. I'd really be surprised if this team makes the NCAA tournament, can they? Yes. I mean, they've surprised. I famously, probably not famously, but I've had people with my Twitter mentions two years ago. They lost the game before Maryland. I think it was, I can't remember who, but I said, read my lips, NIT on Twitter. And uh, when they beat Maryland, someone tweeted at me, read my lips, NCAA. So I've been wrong before. I could be wrong. I would just, I would be very, very, very surprised if this team makes the NCAA tournament for the second time in a row, which would be just the second time in program history that's happened, which is a crazy stat. That's crazy. Very true. And bringing things full circle, that loss before Maryland two years ago was that buzzer beater loss at Penn State when there was, I forget it was on Geo. It was kind of an illegal screen. And uh, I I think that's the most angry I've been at an officiating call in a game where I actually let my frustration show, uh, which I shouldn't have. But uh, yeah, that that, that loss still stings. But um, like you said, that was an heroic I think that, too, for Rutgers fans, is an all-time frustration. 2020, they're going to make the NCAA tournament. And, of course, we have that asterisk. And I think, you know, looking back on it now, especially the way this season's going, it hurts. It hurts Peichel's, I think, you know, fair or not fair perception in terms of, yes, you know, reality is they're going for their third consecutive NCAA tournament, not their second. But 
you know, as the pandemic brought us, it really is just their second. And I think that it does hurt perception and people kind of those that wanted to kind of pretend and forget that that didn't happen. It's easier to do that. And I think it does hurt Michael in the eye of public perception and this team. Um, I think my biggest concern for their legacy and, and kind of, you know, the careers that are finishing up is that regardless of what happens at the end of this season, you know, I don't think it can, obviously, you know, disappointment's going to be part of that legacy, but I think at the same time, they, they, they can't not be remembered for all the progress and, 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 and what they have accomplished with this team. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think longer, the years wear on after this, people will appreciate what this, this group was able to do. Um, I think people who watched Eddie Jordan Rutgers basketball and watched Steve Peichel basketball in the last three years will appreciate the difference that they've made. I think, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. I'm sure thousands of people have said this, but I mean, just how classic are you screw is it that the year Rutgers finally breaks through, you know, the, the world shuts down and uh, that has lasting effects, like you said. So I, I, I don't know how different things would be if they did officially make those two NCAA tournaments, I mean, who knows? That team was really good. They could have made a run. I mean, who, who knows? And then, you know, 2021 is different because there's no pandemic. Who knows? We can play that game until the, the cows come home. Or I'm, I'm botching all these sayings today. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it did it did affect them. And and But to, to your point, legacy, they could still save their legacy. Not save their legacy. Their legacy is in danger. They could still enhance their legacy, uh, finishing January strong, giving, you know, a hard hard fight in February and letting the chips fall where they may. So there's still, there's still time for them. In your defense, Brian, it's probably the, the Penn state air that you're, uh, you're still on campus uh, in happy Valley. So it's probably affecting your, your thought process a little bit, but uh, thanks so much for being back. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure to talk to you about Rucker soups and uh, continue the great work you're doing with, uh, with the NJ advanced media. Thanks so much to Brian Fonseca for being here and talking Rutgers hoops. Always a pleasure speaking with him and, and getting his insights. And uh, I, I think that, you know, he, he he gave some really good observations on the team. And I think also just in terms of being realistic of this outlook, you know, there's no denying Rutgers is, is in an uphill battle right now to uh, to get back into postseason contention. And um, obviously we all hope they will, but things certainly have to change in their approach. And I think their mental toughness, their ability to create energy as a team, and, and just staying disciplined, you know, they, they need to stick to their identity on offense. They've, they've done such a good job of sharing the basketball. They can't fold as quickly as they did in a game like the uh, Penn State. And um, Saturday presents the best opportunity for them to, to get back, get back at it and um, correct those mistakes and, and, and get back, you know, in, in the right direction. Four and two in Big Ten play with with, uh, you know, a huge game against Iowa next week at the rack um, certainly provides an opportunity to, uh, to build some more momentum once again. Thank you for listening. Follow all of our coverage at onthebanks.com and we will talk to you soon. Follow on the banks on Twitter at OTB underscore SB nation and subscribe to us on Apple podcasts. Just search on the banks podcast.